Good morning, my name is Rachel Hooker and I've been a member here at MPC for about five years. Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 15. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, good morning again, and a warm welcome to McLean Presbyterian. My name is James. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's great to have you with us. Whether you're here in our sanctuary, down in our fellowship hall, or even worshiping with us online, it is really important for us to set this time aside. Our souls need this time of, of worship together, encouragement together. We're glad that you've, you've made it a priority to be here. Uh, thank you for your prayers as I went to speak to RUF Summer Conference. So for those of you who might not know, RUF is our denomination's student ministry, stands for Reformed University Fellowship. And I've got to tell you, it's one of those things that makes me really proud to be in our denomination. A great week at the beach a couple of weeks ago with about 1,200 kids from 50 to 60 at different schools. And what's not to love, right? They, they swim in the sea, they lie in the sand, they, we talk about Jesus. 
Christmas. I mean, it's a pretty strong way to end the semester. And uh, it was really encouraging for me to be part of that because I really felt like I was stepping into the, the movement of God that's going on in RUF. I knew that all the students there have been pastored all year long by their own RUF campus pastor. And that after this week at the beach, they'll all be camp, uh, pastored for, for the next year uh, as well. And so what a joy it was as we saw uh, kids come to Christ, as we saw kids open up about some struggles that are going on in their lives, to know that this wasn't just the blip on a radar, but is, it's part of an overall work of God that's taking place place in their lives. So any of our graduating seniors, I very much encourage you to check out the RUF chapter on whatever campus you're, you're going to, and just for all of us to remember to keep that, that important ministry in prayer. And now, though, as we come to David and Nathan, continuing in our series on the life of David, what a passage. This is, a, this is one of those texts that when we say, thanks be to God, you feel like saying, thanks be to God? <laughs> um, we should have like a question mark in the worship guy there. Um, so let's, let's start. Let's start with prayer. Father, we pray that as we come to this text, we would come to you, that you would use uh, your might and your power to reveal to us uh, your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit in, in this passage. Lord, I pray that even in these moments that we would deal with, we would deal with you, that uh, your presence would be felt among us in this place and that our, our hearts and our minds would be focused, fixed, directed to uh, your greatness and your glory and your grace. Be with us that these moments would be, we hope, would be holy and that this would be holy ground, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been, it's been said of Christianity that all of our heroes are failures. All of our heroes are failures. It's one of those things that makes Christianity not just unique, but also kind of unusual. When you look at the great heroes of, of the other faiths, they tend to be admirable and, and respectable. But when you come to Christianity and you look at the great heroes in, in our book, well, all of them are a complete disaster. So, Abraham, father of the faith, also a perpetual liar. His uh, grandson, Jacob, known as the schemer. What about Moses? Surely, you know, he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Well, actually, yeah, but he was also so rebellious that he didn't even make it into the promised land, which was his calling here on earth. Uh, we move into the New Testament, and we think of Peter and his denial, and now we come to David. All of our heroes are failures. David, the man after God's own heart, the tender-hearted poet, who is also a, a mighty warrior of great strength, reveals to us that, that he is also a mess. As we look back on chapter 11, and, and, and we, see, we see his sin. We see how he left a trail of violation and abuse and, and death in his wake. We believe that all of our heroes are failures. And now we come to the aftermath of David's sin. The, 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 you know, the, the, the chapter following the chapter. The chapter following the chapter where David falls apart. We deal with the aftermath of his sin, and we're going to see three things from our passage this morning. First of all, we're going to see the sinfulness of sin. We're going to see the savvy of grace. And thirdly, the surprising death. The sinfulness of sin in, in David. 
the savvy of grace in Nathan, and then the surprising death as we look at the death here of, of David's son. So let's dive in together. First of all, consider the sinfulness of sin. One of the hallmarks of David's story is that God is good and kind and gracious to him again and again and again and again. He's um, unreasonably, unbelievably, preposterously good to David. And we get another reminder of God's goodness to David in verses 7 and 8. Look down at them with me and just underline what, what, what the Lord has done. First we read, the Lord says, I anointed you king over Israel. David, remember where I found you? I found you in a field and I anointed you king over Israel. And second, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Remember when you were on the run from your enemies without hope in this world, hiding in a cave? Well, remember remember who came through and, and delivered you? Then look, verse 8, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. All that belonged to Saul has been inherited now by David. He has great, great wealth. Look, next, fourth, I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. He is king over both of these lands, Israel and Judah. And he says, look at this, if this were too little, and is this too little from, you know, the field to, to the palace? But if it, if it was too little, look, I would add to you as much more. God has been consistently good, kind, lavish, and generous to David. And how does David respond? Chapter 11. Chapter 11. This sin upon sin upon sin, we saw him covet. We saw him steal. We saw him uh, commit adultery. We saw him lie. We saw him murder. We see him piling sin upon sin upon sin in response to God's goodness to him. All of our heroes are failures. But we get a sense of the the sinfulness of his sin, the weight, the gravity of it, by the double use of the verb despised in verses 9 and 10. So look down with me. What we're being told here is, okay, chapter 11 has told us what David did on the surface, but now let's understand why that was so grievous. Look at the double use of the verb despised. First, in verse 9, we read, why have you despised the word of the Lord? and done what is evil in his sight. So everything you did in chapter 11, I have forbidden in my word, and you have completely ignored that. You've completely rejected my, my word. Why have you done that? Why have you despised it? But then look at verse 10. See the use of despised there? Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. You see what he's saying? Um, you didn't just despise the word of the Lord. You despised the Lord of the Word. In other words, God is teaching us that sin, when we do things that he's forbidden or don't do things that he has, he has commanded, isn't just a surface, surface uh, superficial type of behavior. It's not just the breaking of some pedantic moral code. No, the sinfulness of sin, the weight and the gravity of it is found in the fact that it is a, it's a relational reality. It's a relational reality. To despise God's word isn't just to despise his word, but it's to despise, it's to despise him. That sin is part of this great love story where God is lavishly good to us like he's been, been to David. 
where, where God has loved us faithfully and creatively and, and passionately and then called us to walk in joyful relationship with him, a relationship in which we find security and stability, meaning and intelligibility, and yet, like David, we go our own way. We get stressed. We get selfish. We get self-absorbed. We forget the Lord of the Word and therefore ending, uh, end up breaking the Word of the Lord. Sin in its essence, the, the sinfulness of it, isn't just some surface behavior. It's, it's a relational reality. Now, when we put it in this context, the context of this great love story, that, that becomes quite an intuitive thing for us to understand. I, I was speaking this week to a woman who's, who's not in our congregation, but who just recently found out that her husband has been having an affair. Now, what was striking as she spoke was that the, the devastation of this isn't so much the outward act, although that's, of course, you know, hard to think about. No, the devastation of this is what it says about their relationship together. And so in her tears, she didn't say, how could he do this? She said, how could he do this to me? How could he do this to our children? Right? Sin isn't just some outward surface behavior. It's a, it's a relational reality. And all of us who have observed that kind of pain or who have experienced that kind of pain or who have inflicted that kind of pain understand that it's true. Understand that it is, that it is so. The sinfulness of sin, the weight, the gravity of it is found in that it's a relational reality. And it's plain to see in David, all of our heroes are failures. And of course, the same is true for us as well. The same is true for us as well. All of our heroes are, are failures. Um, we, we, we're careful about how we look up to our leaders because we know that, that they're frail. We're careful, I hope we're careful, how we look up to our pastors because we know how prone pastors are to fail. All of us in our own lives look at ourselves and recognize, yeah, I, I'm not the hero to look up to either. I'm, I'm a failure as well. If you've been with us these last few weeks, what have we said? We've said, like Dorian Gray, all of our spiritual portraits are ugly. We've said that, like Kent Brantley, all of us have spiritual Ebola. We've said that, like Uzzah, we have all touched the ark. I read the, a story this week about a man who um, purchased a, a new home, and there was a, a bamboo stand in his, in his driveway, and he didn't want a bamboo stand there, so he went over, and he chopped it down, and then he dug up the roots, and he smashed them all, and then he filled in the hole with gravel, and then just to make sure, he put cement over the top of the hole, right? Two years later, walks out into his driveway. <laughs> what does he see? Little bamboo shoots poking up through the concrete, right? Why? Because bamboo shoots are unquenchable, and eventually, they come out. <laughs> and what a reminder it is of our, of our own sin. The sin that, you know, we can cover up. We can chop them down. We can cover the roots. We can pour over some cement, right? We can, we, can, we can act like they're not there. And yet, in all of our lives, eventually, sin becomes unquenchable. It, its roots start to appear in our lives. Do you see these roots in your life? These shoots in your life? Do you see the evidence of sin? Perhaps for you, it's, it's, it's in your marriage. It's in relationships. It's with your neighbors. 
Perhaps with you it comes out more in how you steward your, your finances or your gifts or your time. Maybe it comes out in just how obsessed you are about what other people think of you, your success in your job, your physical appearance, or your need and desire to be right. Where do you see the bamboo shoots in your own life? It's a reminder to us, it's a challenge to us, that wherever we see it, it's not just some surface level behavior. The sinfulness of it is that it's, it's, it's evidence of our rejection of a, the relational God. We've not just despised this word, we've despised him. And so the sinfulness of sin is seen in us as well. Okay, point one, the sinfulness of sin. Point two, though, let's look at the, the savvy of God's grace. The savvy of God's Grace. Remember we looked at chapter 11 and we made the observation that throughout the whole chapter, throughout all of David's violation and abuse and sin, God is, God is silent. We, we, don't, we don't hear about God's views on the whole matter until that very last word where it says he was displeased. Well, of course, we remember this week that while God is silent, he is, he is not absent. And now, in fact, in chapter 12, God shows up in force. Now, what are we expecting? What are we expecting him to say to David in light of all he's done? We're expecting David to show, uh, God to show up in, in anger with some scorn, and instead, God shows up with grace. Starts in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, the verb sent here is a signal because in chapter 11, as we, as we read our way through chapter 11, this same verb appears 12 times. 12 times in one chapter. That's, that's a lot of repetition. Everybody is sending everybody else everywhere. So David is sending people and Joab is sending people and Uriah is sending people and Bathsheba is sending things as well. And now chapter one, uh, uh, chapter, verse one of chapter 12, God shows up to put an end to all this sending by sending Nathan to David. Now this is good news <laughs> because it reminds us that when you're in your sin, when you are in rebellion, we come to a God of grace who takes the initiative to pursue his people. Do you believe this morning God is coming after you? God is coming after you. That is good news for people like me and for people like you. But what surprises us most of all is how God comes after Nathan. Let's look at verses 2 and, and following. See, it's fascinating, isn't it, that, that David, remember at this time, David, uh, there's no separation of powers in Israel. So David is the king of Israel, but he's also the judge of Israel. And so God sends Nathan to him with a case, with a case. And it's a very simple case. We read in verse 2 that there's two types of men. There's, there's the rich man, right? The rich man who has what? Very many flocks and herds. So he's got flocks and herds, but not just flocks and herds. He's got many flocks and herds. And not just many flocks and herds. He's got very many flocks and herds. This guy is a total baller, right? Then we read about the poor man who has what? Nothing. Very many of, nothing. He, he has nothing apart from one ewe lamb. Rich man, poor man. Third person enters the scene, and it's a guest. A guest from out of town comes to visit with the rich man. And the rich man is so stingy, stingy, so miserly, that he's unwilling to depart with even one meal of his, from his very many flocks and herds. And so what does he do? He takes the poor man's ewe lamb. Interestingly, the verb takes that's used is the same verb that's used to describe how David t- 
takes Bathsheba back in 11 verse, verse 4. He, he takes the ewe lamb and he barbecues it for the guest. David's response. Isn't David's response fascinating? Look at me, down verses 5 and 6. David hears of this case and we read that his anger is greatly kindled. His anger, and it should be. It should be. When we see evil injustice in this world, our anger should be kindled. But David's response then is, is interesting. In his anger, uh, he issues this response that is first deeply religious. Look how he starts his, starts his word. We're saying, as the Lord lives. He's making this vow. He's swearing this oath as the Lord lives. So it's deeply religious language. Secondly, it's, it's gravely judicial language. He says, this man will pay back four t- fourfold what he has stolen. And this was absolutely in in accord with with Old Testament law. Old Testament law stated that if you stole something, you should repay it four times over. But after being so religious and judicial, note that thirdly, David is also completely over the top. See what he says there? As the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. This man deserves to die. Now, just think about this for a second. Um, Is stealing worthy of capital punishment? The answer in the biblical law is no. Nowhere in the law does it say that if you steal, you shall be put to death. This is an an emotional, over-the-top reaction. Yes, this man is miserly. Yes, the rich man is, you know, he's just, he's a bit of a jerk, right? But that doesn't mean he deserves to die. His response is, is completely over the top, which just adds fuel to the fire for what one pastor calls the most direct sermon application in all of preaching history. <laughs> Verse 7, Nathan turns to him and says, you are the man. Not you're the man, right? But like, you are the man. You, you, you are the man that you have just condemned. Now, the point that we're trying to note here, though, is is the savviness of God's grace. Note that God doesn't send Nathan into David's presence with his guns blazing, saying, David, you conniving, wee, womanizing, murdering swine, right? Um, If he'd done that, no doubt the Lord would arrange for Nathan to be murdered next, okay? Instead, um, Nathan comes in with a case. He comes in with with a, you know, a case to, to plead before David so that David ends up judging himself. Here's the key principle. God always prefers conversion to condemnation. God prefers conversion to condemnation. In other words, God's not afraid to send a servant in to tell someone that they're doing wrong, but he's going to send that person in in a way that actually might uh, result in the repentance of the one who has wondered. That Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, John 3, 17, right? That, that what God is after is, is conversion, not just condemnation. And so he brings the gospel to David in a form that he can digest, he brings the gospel to David in a form he can understand. It's savvy. The savvy grace of God. Listen to how one, one preacher describes this. <laughs> he says, It glorifies God for you to tell the truth about sin, but it glorifies God more if the person you're telling the truth to repents. So yes, we're all about truth, but we're about speaking that truth 
in love. Two quick applications on this. First of all, friends, um, you need a Nathan. I need Nathans in my life. We need Nathans in our lives. What do I mean by that? I mean people who know you enough and love you enough to call you out whenever you need to be called out. People who know you enough and love you enough to tell you the challenging things that, that, you, that you need to hear. Because, friends, um, the nature of sin in our lives is uh, s- sin is very blinding. It, blind spots. By definition, we don't see them, and yet they're glaringly obvious to other people. And so we need them to come and speak into our lives. Listen to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. It gives us an amazing description of this. It says, um, friends, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Isn't that good? We need Nathans. Exhort one another every day. Every day? He says, yes. Every day, so long as it is called today. So if... Is today today? Yes, well, that means it's a good day to do this, right? That you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, um, we need one another so that we don't make shipwreck of our faith. Do you believe that you can make shipwreck of your faith? You need to believe that you might make shipwreck of your faith because all of our heroes are failures. (laughs) That includes us as well. And we need people to speak into our lives that we're not blind to, to our sin. Uh, this happened to me this week. One of our staff members came into my office and she said, oh, um, earlier on when we were having this, this meeting, you said something and it, and it came across to me like it felt really dismissive. Okay? And I'm like, she comes in while I'm preparing a sermon on Nathan. Okay? <laughs> the most annoying thing she was right. <laughs> she was right. And I need people to, so I don't make shipwreck of my faith. Now, um, if you believe that you can make shipwreck of your faith, understand that God has given us the prescription for this problem in one another. In having a community who, as long as it's called today, will speak truth into each other's lives so that we will be a community of Nathans who walk each other home. Right. You need a Nathan. Secondly, um, and hopefully more briefly, um, we need, um, our world needs Nathans. We need Nathans and we need to be Nathans. Our world needs Nathans. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's so easy for us and it's so easy for, for the church and Christians to, to look out at our world in a spirit of condemnation and look at the hot button issues of abortion and homosexuality and transgender and all the rest, or even to look at the challenging people in our own lives as well, and simply respond with condemnation, respond with scorn to harangue and condemn, and forget that God prefers conversion to condemnation. God prefers conversion to condemnation, so it's not that we're not going to speak truth, but it's that we need to speak the truth in love. That pastor I quoted earlier continues. If you condemn a person in such a way that is so offensive that it makes it almost impossible for that person to repent, you're self-righteous. You're not on God's side. You are not a vehicle for the shrewd grace of God. One of our elders said to me this week, it's easier to be on the side of truth than it is to have truth on your side. Now just dwell on that with me for a second. (laughs) 
It's easier to be on the side of truth than it is to have truth on your side. And what he's saying is, um, it is possible to be right and sinful at the same time. And if you look out into the world and have a spirit that is confrontational and bombastic and condemnatory, you may be being right and sinful at the same time. And the Bible would call us to have the spirit of speaking truth in love, speaking truth in a way that actually might result in repentance, that might actually result in conversion, not just in condemnation. So to come and have that soft word that turns away anger. Or the other proverb, how good is this one? A gentle word will break a bone. There's power to words, but there's power to gentle words. And so we want to have that kind of witness where we don't just look out at these issues of abortion and homosexuality and transgender and condemn, but actually engage on these issues in a way that actually might pull in and call to repentance and bless those who are wrestling with these issues. So we need to ask ourselves, are you speaking truth in a way that conceals grace? Or are you speaking truth in a way that reveals grace? Are you speaking the gospel in a way that makes it easy to digest? Are you speaking the gospel in a way that makes it easy to, to understand? Christians, we've got to have this approach in our culture that we are not merely here to curse the darkness. We're here to light candles and show a more beautiful way. We need Nathans. Our world needs Nathans, the savvy grace of God. Point three, the surprising death. Sinfulness of sin, the savvy grace of God, and then the surprising death. The surprising death. Look with me now at verses 13 and following. David has, has listened to the sermon of Nathan, and what unfolds from this sermon is confession and assurance. First of all, verse 13, we see confession. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord, David says. Now, sometimes we think, I've sinned against the Lord. Like, is that all you've got? <laughs> you know, like, do you remember what happened a page ago? Do you remember all that unfolded? Like, I'm going to need a little more here, David. I want more specificity. I want a little more groveling, a little more wallowing, a little more promising of this, that, and the next thing. Well, we shouldn't want it because sometimes sincerity is marked by brevity. And all David says is, ah, I've sinned against the Lord. He doesn't try and justify himself. He doesn't try to explain himself. He doesn't call upon mitigating circumstances. He doesn't try to do anything other than take responsibility for the things he's done. And so there's beauty in the brevity, as he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And in response to this confession, we see what God always does whenever there's confession. And that is provide assurance. Look at verse 13 into verse 14. Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. David commits grotesque sin. He confesses, and God says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Two things about this, this assurance. First of all, note how free it is. How free it is. Isn't it beautiful that the assurance is as brief as the confession? See, see there, there, there is no law that, that Nathan can refer to in order to provide this forgiveness. And there, there, there is no, um, you know, requirement for future behavior that, that Nathan can, can put upon this forgiveness. No, the, the forgiveness, the assurance is as brief as the confession because it comes solely by grace. 
solely by grace, and so there's not much more to say. David, you don't deserve it. You can't do anything to earn it, but it's here. So as you, all you had to say was, I've sinned. All I have to say is, the Lord forgives. A reminder to us, friends, there is always more grace in God than there is sin in you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the depth of your shame and guilt. There is more grace in God than there is sin in you. And so no matter what you confess, God says, I put away your sin. You shall not die. This assurance is free, but while it's free, look at verse 14. It's also costly. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. quick thing on this. We don't have time to to unpack the nuance of this. I just want to be very quick and careful to say, friends, if you have lost a child, do not draw a straight line from your experience to this text. There is not a one-to-one correspondence between your sin and your loss. Again and again and again, we've said throughout this series, be very careful how you insert yourself into this text, because This story isn't about me and it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. And sometimes that's very good news. Do not draw a one-to-one correspondence between your sin and your loss. That's not what this text is about. Secondly, though, we do have to recognize that in this case, and in this specific case, though David will not die, there is a death. Though David will not die, there is a death. The child who is born to you shall die. Now, I don't know, how, did, how does that hit you? Here's how it hits me. I feel angry about that. I sense injustice. Even a little bit of disgust. Not so much when I think about David, but when I think about Bathsheba and her child. You know? How is it? Like, this doesn't seem right. Like, David is the sinful one here, and now an innocent child will die, and then in my outrage comes the savvy grace of God to say, you are the man. I am the man. You are the man. Because what this text is showing us is a pattern of how the gospel works. David deserved to die, we say. Yes. And so do we. And an innocent child died, and we say yes. And so did Christ. This text is pointing us toward David's son, David's greater son, who would come and bear the weight of our sin, who would die in our place, that we might not receive the death we deserve, but might instead receive forgiveness, might instead receive grace. And I hope that there's something in this passage that touches a nerve with you, that helps you understand this gospel afresh. How outrageous is it that God would give the Son for us? As outrageous as 2 Samuel 12. And when we start to understand that, our outrage turns to thanks. Thanks that God would not even spare his only Son, that we might have, that we might have life. That through him, if you receive him, God says to you, your sin has been put away. You will not die. I'm out of time. I'm over time. Last thing I'm going to say. Um, 
All of our heroes are failures apart from Jesus Christ. If you receive him now, you'll have grace for eternity, but you'll also have grace for this life. It's that grace that will enable you to to have Nathan's, to receive it when people speak hard truth to you. It's that grace that will give you the courage and the winsome spirit to, to be a Nathan to others. So, so let's focus our eyes on Christ. See the sinfulness of your sin, but receive the savvy of his grace that's given to us freely in the surprising death of Christ. Friends, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this section of your word. And once again, Lord, for the, the challenge and the encouragement that it gives us. Challenging because it's unmasking. We see how David doesn't die, but that an innocent child dies in his place. And, and Father, that reveals to us um, all that you've done for us and all that had to be done for us. And so, Lord, we do pray that we would be unmasked, that our pride, our self-security, our self-sufficiency would be uh, blown away by this text. But also, Lord, as the gospel unmasks, it, it surely affirms. Affirms that uh, you love your children enough uh, to give your only son. And so we receive him and ask us that you would help us to be like him as we move out uh, to, to live life in this culture. Would we be Nathans? Would we have Nathans? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.